This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Letter number 11, page 186. It's hard to find the right adjective to characterize this letter. Very unique. Alter Rebbe is addressing how you deal with pain and suffering. And there are three places in the Tanya where Alter Rebbe addresses how one is to deal with pain and suffering, human pain and suffering, personal pain and suffering. One we had already learned and studied. Chapter 26 in the first part of the Tanya. You can listen to it and find it on LessonsInTanya.com. This is the second letter which deals entirely with the subject of dealing with pain and suffering. And then we're going to learn a, a letter number 22 which also deals with the same subject. And each one deals with it from a different point of view, deals three different ways of approaching and dealing with pain and suffering. Here the Alter Rebbe takes a very unique approach and this letter is also unique is that the letter, unlike all the other letters, are addressed in the singular. He starts out the letter, to enlighten you with understanding. Although the Tanya is a book written for everyone, for the average person, for everyone, the whole premise of the Tanya is that this whole approach is something that's near and dear to everyone. And yet, here, the Alter Rebbe addresses the letter in the singular to enlighten you with understanding. And he seems to describe a level that's so esoteric, that's so beyond the normal average person. Not only the average person, even the Benini, the person who's steeped in Torah, mitzvot, and godliness, and holiness, and yet he discusses a level where a person reaches a level where not only doesn't he feel the pain and suffering, he actually feels that it's a blessing and that it's something that's good and because everything that comes from God is good this seems to be such a lofty level that's beyond human capacity there's the famous story where a Jew comes to Rabbi Dovber, the Magadim is rich, the Rebbe of the Alter Rebbe, and he says he doesn't understand the Mishnah and Tractate, 
Baruch, the very first tractate in the Talmud, in the ninth chapter, the Mishnah says, just like you have to thank Hashem for the good things that happened to you, you have to thank Hashem for the bad things that happened to you. So much so, we even make a blessing. We thank Hashem, we say, Baruch Hashem, when the worst tragedy happens, when a death happens, God forbid, we make a blessing. We thank Hashem, Baruch the same blessing you make. When something good happens, you make and thank Hashem for something terrible, a tragedy. And then the Talmud adds, not only do you have to make a blessing, you have to receive it with joy. So this chassid, chassid, a chassidic Jew, his whole life was godliness, Torah, mitzvot, holiness. He asked Rabbi Dov he said, how is this humanly possible? How could you bless Hashem, thank Hashem for the bad things that happen? Equally, just like you thank Hashem for the good things that happen. And the Talmud adds, insult to injury, not only do you have to thank Hashem, bless Hashem, you have to receive it with joy. How is this possible? Rabbi Dover says, you want the answer to this question? Go visit my chassid, your fellow chassid, Rabbi Zusha, Zusha of Anapol, who was a colleague of the Alter Rebbe. So he travels to Anapol, he's looking for Rabbi Zusha. Rabbi Zusha lives in the edge of town, the wrong side of the railroad tracks, in a broken down hovel with his family, furnished, you can hardly call the partner furnished, broken bench here, a broken table there, kids running around in tatters. There's hardly anything to eat in the house. He says, I, he asks Rabbi Zusha, can I stay here? Rabbi Zusha says, listen, you're welcome to stay. I don't have much to offer you. But whatever I have, I'll share with you. He's there for a day, or two, or three. Rabbi Zusha sees he's not doing any business. He says, listen, I don't mind you staying here, but do you, uh, maybe I can help you. What are you trying to accomplish? The chassid says, I'll tell you the truth. Our Rebbe, Rabbi Dover, sent me to you. I had, this is the question that I asked him, and I sent him to you, and I'm very puzzled. I don't know why he sent me to you. I, I, what's the answer? So Abba looks at him. And he, says, he says, I don't understand. I'm, I'm just as puzzled as you are. Why in the world did the Rebbe send you to me? What do I know about this pain and suffering? I've never suffered a day in my life. <laughs> and he had his answer. And Abba wasn't being facetious. He actually meant it. Whether God gives with the right hand, the God gives with the left hand. It's just like a person, your right hand, your left hand, it's you. God is giving me. I'm living in God's world. I'm happy. This is, this is the level of the complete tzaddik. This is an impossible level. One or two in a generation, this is, this is a level of a person who's so godly, who's so to the core, that he looks at pain. Anyone else would be groaning and and kvetching and being angry and, and Rabbi Zushu kept on smiling genuinely smiling from within I'm the happiest person in the world I'm the richest person in the world God is always good to me I've never suffered a day in my life which explains how the Talmud says we studied in the first part of the Tanya right in the beginning the first chapter what's the difference in a tzaddik v'tayvloi why is there one tzaddik that has it good the Talmud asks, and the tzaddik and there's a tzaddik that doesn't have it good. The answer is, the tzaddik, the tzaddik who has it good, is the complete tzaddik. The tzaddik who suffers is the incomplete tzaddik. 
Now, the Rebbe went on to explain at great length what is the true definition, true meaning of a complete tzaddik, one who has completely transformed his ego, completely transformed his being to his very core and essence. He has become godly. Not only doesn't, has he suppressed his evil inclination, not only has he completely nullified his evil inclination, he has no urge and instinct for anything material. Couldn't care less about money, power, fame, indulgence, but more so, his entire pleasure has been completely transformed. His pleasure principle has been completely transformed into godliness. But nevertheless, how do you explain the Talmud? Are we going to say that every complete tzaddik prospers? That many tzaddikim who suffer, like Rabbi Zusha of Anapal, he was suffering. By any objective yardstick, he was suffering. Lived in abysmal poverty, and yet he was the happiest person in the world. And this explains what the Talmud means. Tzaddik gamur, a complete tzaddik. Whatever happens to him is tzaddik v'tayvla, he's good. He doesn't experience it as suffering. Whatever God throws him, to him, it's all good. It's God. God is good, period. I'm living in God's world. Everything that God gives me, God, everything that I have comes from God personally. Divine, by divine providence, down to the little tiniest detail. And God is good. So there's no such thing as suffering. What do you mean suffering? Everything is good. If God is giving it to me, it's good. This is such a lofty level. This is not only for, not, it's not even for the incomplete tzaddik. This is for the complete tzaddik. And yet in this letter, the Alter Rebbe is basically... is telling us how do you cope with pain and suffering by realizing it's all good and you shouldn't experience it as suffering you should experience it as joy with joy as good and this is included in the book of Benin for the average Jew but yet the Alter Rebbe writes it in the singular he starts out the letter to enlighten you with understanding. All the other letters are addressed in the plural. Here, he's addressing it in the singular. And the answer is, this is the key of his approach here to pain and suffering, especially as it's elaborated by the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe in the Hasidic discourse that he gave in the beginning of World War II, when World War II broke out, when he was hiding for his life in, in Warsaw and Warsaw was being bombarded and attacked so you talk about pain and suffering <laughs> that was the greatest pain and suffering mankind has ever seen when, you f when your living room became the front lines and now Hamas is following that Nazi tradition attacking millions of men, women and children which even one missile is a war crime 2,000 missiles is a war crime times 2,000. It's only by miracles that there haven't been any mass casualties. So the previous Rebbe, under these circumstances, said a Hasidic discourse elaborating on the point that the Rebbe is making here in the fall of 1939. And in chapter 25, in the first part of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe explained that a person how does a person deal with pain and suffering? 
how does a person receive it with joy when you're suffering? And he explained that you have to realize that the suffering is really, there's a hidden good, a hidden kindness in the suffering. Because there's an intimacy that you experience, the person who's suffering. Suffering comes from a much deeper place from within God, a much more intimate place. And God only gives us the suffering that we can handle. And it's custom-made and tailor-made for each and every one of us. So in a paradoxical way, when we, are, when we suffer, we actually experience an intimacy that we cannot describe in words. In a way, we feel closer to God when, we're pain, when we experience pain and suffering than we do when God showers us with kindness, with His kindness. Overt kindness. That overt kindness is more external and superficial. But pain and suffering comes from a much deeper, much more intimate level within God. From the higher level, layers, the higher levels, the upper le- uh, two letters of God's name. Which will be revealed when Mashiach will come. When Mashiach will come, a person who receives, says a person who receives, the Talmud says a person who receives the suffering with the joy, will merit to see when Mashiach will come, the sun will come out. Because a person whose life is defined by externals and materialism, when that person suffers, his whole life is crushed. There's nothing left. You know, during the Depression, people jumped out the windows because the whole life came to an end. They had nothing more to live for. But a Jew has a much deeper life. You have a much, your life is much more than your externals. It's about your relationship with Hashem. That's primary to you. And when you experience pain and suffering, you feel an intimacy with Hashem, like Hashem's hand is on you. A certain gentleness even, that Hashem is making sure that you can handle the suffering and He's with you in the pain and suffering. And it's, it's a much more intimate level, much more mature level of the relationship. That Hashem feels you can handle a much deeper level of the relationship. And you feel that and you sense that. And, you, and that's what you're rejoicing with. I'm not rejoicing in the pain and suffering. We don't like pain and suffering. We don't want pain and suffering. We have to pray to Hashem to remove the pain and suffering. But what, what we do rejoice with is the intimacy with Hashem. When Mashiach will come, when the sun will come out of its hiding, when godliness will be palpable and tangible, when it will be crystal clear that life is about our relationship with Hashem, that's reality. So those who suffered in this world and those who received it with joy, they will bask in the glory because... That's what defined their life. That's what their life was all about. So in the world of Mashiach, they will, they will be on top. Those who define themselves by materialism, Mashiach will come, they'll be lost. All their props will be taken away. Those who are mentioned and listed in the Forbes 400 will, won't even be, I don't know, will be in the bottom 400 if they're lucky. That's not the criteria that people are measured. Mashiach will come, money won't mean anything. The only thing that will matter is your relationship with Hashem, your in- inner life, your inner soul, how egoless you are, what a, what a good person you are, the kindness that you've done, the effort that you've exerted, the sweat, the toil, the Torah, mitzvot, the selflessness, the sacrifice, that's the only thing that will stand out. Everything else will be mean absolutely nothing. So a person who can receive with joy, receive pain and suffering in this world with joy because you rejoice. What are you rejoicing? God forbid, you're not rejoicing in the suffering, but you're rejoicing 
and the intimacy that you experience with Hashem, when the sun will come out, the Mashiach will come, you'll bask in the glory. This will be your world. You will be right there. You will be in the front line receiving all this the ray and glory and, and joy of that revelation of Hashem. That's what he explained in chapter 26 in the first part of the time. In the letter 22 that we're going to learn, if you please God, the Alter Rebbe takes a different approach. The Alter Rebbe says that you have to realize that suffering, pain and suffering, is the ultimate act of love. Because a parent only punishes their own child. If a stranger acts out, acts up, it's not my child. I don't care. It's, not, it's none of my business. But when my child acts up, because I love my child dearly, and I'll do anything for my child, therefore I'm not going to let my child act up. I'm not going to let my child grow up wild. So I am going to discipline them, and I'm going to, if your child gets all muddied up, so the parent will take the child into the bath and scrape away the mud. The child is yelling, it hurts, it kills. But you're cleaning the child. You're saving the child. The child is dirty, the child can get affected, infected. You clean up the child. Of course it hurts, and the child is yelling and kicking and screaming, but it's the ultimate act of love. Because I love the child, so I'm, doing, I'm cleaning up the child. So when we act up, and we act reckless and recklessly, and we behave recklessly, without any care and concern, and we act dangerously, and we endanger ourselves, and we act in a self-destructive way, and our life is going downhill very quickly, without any breaks, without any self-restraint, without any self-discipline. We just gave up the battle. We gave up the struggle. Hashem is not going to let us get away with it because Hashem loves us too much. Because Hashem loves us so much, that's why we have the pain and suffering. The pain and suffering is a wake-up call. It's the ultimate act of love. Hashem says, I'm not letting you get away with this. I care too much about you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to clean up your act. And I'm going to help you get back on your feet. You know, a person has to reach bottom sometimes before they, can, before they can wake up and get their act together and start rebuilding their life. So this is the ultimate act of love. And when you realize how, what, how loving it is, this pain and suffering is actually the ultimate act of God loves us so much and He cares about us so much. He says, I'm not just going to let you run wild and act as you will and do as you please. I know you're an American and you have rights to do as you want, but, you know, but God loves us too much to get away with murder. And he says, I am going to clean, clean you and I'm going to help you. When you realize how this is the ultimate act of love, because for a parent it's even more painful than it is for the child, but because the parent truly loves the child and cares for the child, the parent is ready to inconvenience himself and put himself through torture and pain because he knows it's for the benefit of the child. I may have to amputate the leg, but I'm saving the, the life. If I don't amputate the leg, the person is going to die because he has gangrene, he has poison. This is the ultimate loving act. I'm cutting off the leg, but I'm saving, saving the, the child. 
The, only a parent can do such an act. It's the ultimate kindness. So when you realize how the pain and suffering, it's not about punishment that God is getting back at us and hurting us and harming us. And it's the ultimate act of Hashem's love for us. His love for us is so unlimited that He's ready to put us through this and just in order to wake us up and to get us back and to heal us and to get us back in our two feet. We can't help but respond with love in kind. And when you, instead of trying to turn your face away, you feel safe. When the parent takes the time and the effort and the inner emotional price that the child, that the parent has to pay to discipline a child takes a lot out of the parent. It's more painful to the parent than it is to the child. When the child sees how much the parent cares for them, they care so much about them that they're ready to discipline them. For the first time in their life, the child feels safe. Somebody really loves me. You know, in America, everyone talks about love. It's not love. It's enough to give you the chills. Love means do whatever you want and whatever makes you happy and I couldn't care less and don't bother me. I don't want to be bothered and I'll throw you another toy and I'll be more permissible and I'll let you do whatever you want. That, that's the ultimate cruelty. What you're saying is your message to your child is I couldn't care less about you. Just don't bother me. I don't have time for you. Just let me sleep. Not only physically sleep. Let me sleep emotionally and spiritually and don't bother me. I don't have the emotional energy for you. I don't have the time for you. Just let me give you whatever you want. Let me spoil you. And then they wonder why the kid grows up into drug addicts and all messed up, psychologically all messed up. I gave them everything they wanted. I spoiled them. I treated them well. I was their best friend. But you know, a child needs love. And when a child feels, when a, you discipline a child, the child, gets the, the child feels safe because they get the message, my parent really loves me, really cares about me, to take the time and to take the effort. And I know the emotional price. Because when the child looks at the face of the parent, they see pain. They don't see joy. If there's joy, that's an abuser. That's, that's, a, that's a sickness. We're talking about a healthy, normal parent. They feel pain. They see the pain. And in that pain, they see love. They know, you know, somebody really loves me. Enough to discipline me. Somebody really cares about me. So when you experience that love from Hashem, when you experience the pain and suffering, when you respond with love, don't try to run away, but respond with love, to respond to Hashem's love. Realize how much Hashem loves you and cares about you. And when you realize that, that will, Hashem in turn will also respond that the love will become overt and the pain and suffering will be transformed into, into overt goodness and overt kindness. Because you've learned the lesson. Here the Alter Rebbe is taking a different approach. A much more higher approach. A much deeper approach. A much more profound approach. A much more powerful approach. And that's why he says it in the singular. He says that this is a test. God is testing us. When Hashem gives us pain and suffering, He's testing us. As we find right in the beginning, in the book of Exodus, when the Jewish people left Egypt and they crossed the sea, to all these astonishing miracles, ten plagues, the greatest miracle in history, the splitting of the sea. What's the first thing that happens? First, one of the tests, one of the ten tests, 
They come to a place called Mara. Why was it called Mara? Water was bitter. They couldn't drink. There no water. Three million men, women, and children stuck in a desert with no water to drink. Is that a test or is that a test? You're talking about basic necessities. There's no water to drink. Bitter water. There's no 7-Elevens. There's no Costco's to run to get some water. There's no water bottles. You're in the middle of a desert. Dry. Nothing. The water that they found was bitter. Pain and suffering. Is there greater pain and suffering than thirst? It's the worst type of... Worse than starvation. It's the worst type of death to die from thirst. Families. Parents can't give a drop of water to their children. And the Torah says God was testing them. The ultimate test. God gave them pain and suffering. The worst pain and suffering imaginable. Nothing to drink. No prospects of any water around. God was testing them. It's a test. Tests are very powerful. There's a very powerful energy in the test. And the test is also an illusion. There's no reality to the test. It's just a test. It's just an illusion. It appears to be that they were suffering. It appears to be that they were, they were checkmated. It appears to be that they were... It appears it's suffering. And the test was for them to realize the level of their faith. For them to realize that God carried you till now. Ten miracles, ten plagues, splitting of the sea. Don't you think that God who carried you till now will continue to carry you? Will manage to take care of all your needs? It was a test of their faith. Where's your faith? And when you withstand this test and you realize it appears to be pain and suffering, but the truth is, anything that God does is good and it's good. And you don't experience it as suffering at all. Like Rabbi Zusha said, I've never suffered a day in my life. I'm living in God's world and God is good and whatever God gives me, right, from his right hand, from his left hand, what difference does it make? It's the same. It's one God. It's all good. What happened at the end? Moshe threw the stick into the water, a bitter stick, by the way. And miraculously, the bitter water was transformed into sweetness. This is the purpose of a test. A test comes from the, in Hebrew, is nisayon, which also comes from the word nes, to lift up. The purpose of a test is no end in itself. A test is just a test. It's an illusion. It's a mirage. But it's a powerful test. It's to test your strength. It's to test your inner strength. It's to bring out your inner strength. If you're able to withstand the test and able to strengthen your faith and to rejoice and to sense God's presence and to be strong, not to falter and not to lose faith and not to lose your nerve, then what happens is that everything is transformed. The negative is transformed into positive. The bitter water turned into a source of sweet water. 
And Hasidus says, this is the power of a test, this is the purpose of a test. Behind the test is a powerful divine energy. Everything in this world has a spark. Everything in this world has a divine energy. It's not as powerful. Everything that we interact with, everything that we come in contact with, has a divine spark, and our mission in life is to elevate the spark. But it doesn't transform us, it doesn't change us. It's not so powerful. We have to eat kosher, and by eating kosher, we elevate the spark. But kosher doesn't have a powerful force. That's how you know it's not kosher. <laughs> when, when you're attracted to something too much, a powerful attraction, you know it's not kosher. <laughs> There's something suspicious there. You better check. Maybe it was a mistake by mistake. A test is powerful. The divine energy, the divine spark behind the test is powerful. And the purpose is you should overcome the test. You should be strong inside. When you have the ability to overcome a test, it has the power and the ability to completely transform the person who withstood the test. Hasidus says when a person passes a test, even the Benini, the average Jew, could reach the level of the complete tzaddik. It completely transforms his, his, his ego. That your pleasure center becomes completely sublimated to godliness. You literally reach the level of the complete tzaddik through the test. This is explained in many Hasidic discourses, especially in the previous Rebbe's discourse. And this Maimur of Yitl in 19, Tafshin, the fall of 1939, which he said at the beginning of the war while he was hiding to save his life with, with hundreds of thousands of Jews in Warsaw, the beginning of World War II. It's a test. Pain and suffering is just a test. That's what Al Rebbe is saying. Powerful point. And that's why he's saying it in the singular. He can't say this in the plural because this is not for the plural. You can't reach this level. But he's talking in the singular to the person who's, pain, who's suffering. If God singled you out, if God chose you to put you through this test, that means God is giving you the ability by withstanding this test. You have the ability to reach this high level where your life is completely transformed and your whole life becomes godly. And then you can receive pain and suffering with joy. You don't look at it as pain and suffering. Then you reach a level, as Rabbi Zusha said, I haven't suffered a day in my life. It's all good. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, the Rebbe is writing this. This is a book of Benanim. It's not a book of Tzaddik. He's including this in the book of Benanim because he's telling the Benanim that if God, and he's speaking in the singular, if God singled you out and is putting you through this test and is giving you this powerful energy, which is the energy of a test, this powerful divine spark, which is more powerful than all of the divine sparks that exist in all the physical beings in this world, the spark behind this, this illusion, this mirage, that you're suffering. When re in reality, it's really all good. That means God has singled you out and God is giving you the ability by withstanding this test to completely transform your life. You will never be the same again if you stand up to this test. And this is, the Rebbe says, this is the whole purpose of life, the whole purpose of creation. God created us. Life is tests. Life is full of tests. 
previous Rebbe in the Hasidic Discourse, I think, discusses five, six levels of tests. Life is a series of tests. But it's the ultimate vote of confidence. If you need strength, the test itself should give you all the strength that you need. Because if God is giving us that test, it means God is telling us, I have confidence in you. God doesn't give a person the test they can't handle. It's the ultimate vote of confidence. God is saying, I'm ready to elevate you. I want to elevate you to the level of the complete tzaddik. Through this test and withstanding this test, you will complete, the bitterness will be transformed into sweetness. Your whole ego and animal soul, natural, will be completely transformed and sublimated to God. See, he's talking to the Benini. This is included in the book of Benim. It's not a book of Tzaddikim. This wasn't a book written for Abzusha of Anapola. We're studying it today. But the Rebbe is saying it in the singular. Because if we're tested, through a test, you completely transform your whole being. A test affects you very deeply. A test is extraordinary. It's not a, it's not a regular event. That means Hashem is ready to elevate you to, something, to achieve something extraordinary. And the fact that you are suffering, that God singled you out with pain and suffering, that's a test. God is testing you. Just like God tested the Jewish people. Because whatever happened to the Jews in the desert, they were the role model for future generations. Why did God test the Jews? One test after the other after the other. Because every one of us, we have to go through that in life. So if a person is going through pain and suffering, imagine God depriving them of water, three million men, women, and children deprived of water. So God says in the Torah, Shom, in Parshas B'Shalach, Shom, Sam Lechaykom, Misha, Shom Niso, it's a test, as the commentaries say, the Ebenezer and the Ramban, God is testing us, testing our faith. And if He tests us, that means He gives us the strength to overcome the test. And we overcome the test and we release and unleash a powerful divine energy, it's very personal. It's very, very intimate. And it completely transforms our being. We'll never be the same. It'll elevate us to a whole different level. They tell the story, actually the Rebbe's grandfather, the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe Zulchana's father, Rebbe Shlomo Shle- uh, Yanovsky. He was the rabbi of Nikolaev. It's the town the Rebbe was born in. And uh, he had one tragedy in his life. He lost a daughter, very young, and it was a devastating blow to him. And then he himself got very sick. He contracted the typhus. Isn't there in the beginning of the beginning of the twentieth century? And. In those days, they had no cure for typhus. So they, they quarantined them. They locked them up. No one could visit them. They didn't allow anyone to visit them. Once a day, a doctor would go in and give them some whatever medication he had, or, and they were let to die. So the rabbi of the town was locked in this, in this quarantine, locked up. No one could visit him. He was completely physically broken. He was emotionally broken. And his friend, Rabbi Usher, Nik- Rabbi Usher Nikolaev, eh? um, 
was a sheikhet, was the slaughterer in the town, the sheikhet. And he tried to visit his friend. They wouldn't let him visit. So he took the Tanya. And he went as far as he can go, outside the window. You know, there were bars and he couldn't, couldn't go in. But that was the window where his friend was lying. And loud, in his loudest voice, he would read this chapter in the Tanya, this letter in the Tanya. Letter number 11. Every day he would come, for 30 days he came and he read this letter. And then miraculously, and Shleiman got, was, he, he was cured. He, he, he was healed. And he said that when his friend came and read the letter of the Alter Rebbe, this letter, it gave him such an inspiration. It was like an injection. Every time he felt an injection of life, and every day he felt a little stronger and a little stronger. It gave him courage. Because he was like in the dumps. His life was over. Talk about pain and suffering. He was facing a dead end. It was over. There was no cure. There was nothing they can do. He was locked up in quarantine and left to die. And he was devastated on every level, physically and emotionally. But he read the letter, and this letter gave him strength. And every day he got a little stronger and stronger. And very few people walked out of that place. They were all left to die, and he walked out. My great uncle, Rabbi Mendel Futafas, a great chassid who sat in Siberia for close to 20, for, for like close to 20 years, for uh, most of the Lubavitch left, and he was arrested, and incredible chassid. And uh, tragically, when he came back to London, um, his daughter, his daughter with her children, they were in a car accident and she saved his children's lives. She threw them out of the car and she was killed. Can you imagine after suffering so much, sitting in a Siberian prison close to two decades and, and losing, his, losing his daughter, his only daughter. At the funeral, one of his Good friends tells him, Rab Mendel, don't forget the Asgil Chabina, don't forget the this this letter. This letter is a classic. This letter is a classic. It's very well renowned. It's very well known. It's a powerful, powerful, probably the most powerful letter ever written. How a Jew can deal with pain and suffering. And it's very uplifting. It's a very loving letter. This is the most one of the most loving letters. Because the Alter Rebbe is not poo-pooing pain and suffering. A Jew has to pray. And we don't want pain and suffering. And the Alter Rebbe writes, when a person will withstand the test, and instead of feeling that it's pain and suffering, will feel that it's, uh, re- feel that it's good and it's from Hashem, and, 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 and be joyful, that will transform the pain and suffering, and then it will become an overt goodness in a much quicker way than the other ways. The other ways, in chapter 26, you have to wait till Mashiach comes to experience the goodness. In, chap- in the letter 22, you have to work on yourself, you have to respond with a love to Hashem, and then Hashem will reveal His love, and then the goodness will be revealed. So it takes tremendous work and effort. Here, you just have to withstand the test. The moment you withstand the test, but the moment you prove the point, 
there's no need anymore for any more pain and suffering. You've proved the point. And then immediately the pain and suffering can be transformed to goodness. So the goal is, ultimately the goal is, that there should be goodness, overt goodness. A Jew is obligated to pray, it's in the Torah. We're obligated to pray for goodness. As a matter of fact, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the holiest days of the year, when every Jew is on the level of a tzaddik, we're all praying and immersed in holiness and godliness. What's the focus of all our prayers? We don't pray for spiritual things. First and foremost, primarily, we pray for material things. What's the most moving prayer of the Holy Yom Kippur? The Sanatayket? We talk about physical. We want to live and be healthy. And a Jew is obligated to pray for physical. God wants that things should be good physically and materially and tangibly. And if not, there's something wrong with the picture. And we can't make peace with it. We don't turn the other cheek. It's not a Jewish concept. We're supposed to storm heaven and earth. That things should be good. So the goal is, ultimately, that things should be good. But Al-Tarebi is saying the quickest way to get there is when you realize that life is a test. Life is a series of tests. Pain and suffering, the ultimate test. And it's a test of the strength of our faith. And when we come out, with, when we pass the test with flying colors, Instead of feeling down, we feel joyful and feel our faith and feel Hashem and we realize it's not suffering, it's all good and, and instead of feeling pain and suffering, we feel joy. That will quickly transform and change the situation that you'll see the overt blessing. So that is the goal. The goal is to, that it should translate into overt blessings. Absolutely. It's a biblical commandment to pray. That things should be good, physically good. That's what God wants. That's the ultimate. But the fastest way to get there is through withstanding the test. So this is really the kindest thing that Alter Rebbe could write. Alter Rebbe is telling, telling us that if God singled you out for pain and suffering, it's a test. God has so much faith in you. God has so much confidence in you. God is elevating you to the level of the complete tzaddik. You're ready for an upgrade. You're ready to completely transform your life from the bitterness of ego and your natural soul to completely sublimate it and transform it to godliness that your pleasure will become godliness and your whole being will become godliness and your whole life will become godliness. What a powerful message. What an inspiring message. What a positive message. Not God singled you out because he hates you and he's angry at you and he's... On the contrary, God has singled you out to elevate you to the highest level imaginable to achieve the impossible. For an average Jew to become and to reach the level of a complete tzaddik, to sublimate your pleasure, that your entire being and pleasure and core and essence will become godly. And your faith, that becomes your reality. This is what a loving letter. It's the most loving letter in the whole, the whole series of letters. But we have to remember, this is essential, that all these discussions of how we deal with pain and suffering, chapter 26, in the first part of the Tanya, letter number 22, which we're going to learn in the future, please God, and letter number 11, which we're going to learn now, this is all regarding our own pain and suffering. 
Not God forbid another person's, another human being's pain and suffering. We cannot make peace with another human being's pain and suffering. When the Talmud says you have to thank Hashem for the bad just as much as you have to thank for the good, when someone dies, the family makes a blessing. God forbid a person should get up at the funeral and say, okay, let's make a blessing. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. This person died. God forbid. The other person's pain and suffering. We cannot make peace with another person's pain. Not only we can't make peace with another person's pain and suffering, another person's inconvenience we can't make. When a person leads a spiritual life, a godly life, couldn't care less about materialism, lives with the basic beer necessities, materialistic necessities, because he, he doesn't care about materialism. That's only for myself. Another Jew's excess, that's holy to me. When you have a guest in your house, when Avram had the guest, Avram, Abraham, the ultimate role model of kindness, Avram for himself didn't need anything. When he had the three guests who appeared to him as three lowlifes, three nomads who worshipped the dust under their feet, Mother Earth, Gaia, what did he do? He ran slaughtered three calves to give each one of them a tongue, the choicest meat. Avram for himself was an ascetic. He didn't need much. He didn't need much. He didn't need much. He couldn't care less. Materialism meant nothing. But that's for myself. But another human being's needs, they need luxuries. Their luxury is my holy commandment, is my spirituality. To take care of their luxury and to, to help them and to accommodate them and to give them whatever they want and to treat them royally. To give him a royal feast. Rebbe, we learned chapter 8, the first part of the Tanya. Rebbe himself was a complete ascetic. Before he passed away, he says, God can testify, the heavens can testify, I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy anything of this world. He was the richest person that ever, one of the richest people that ever lived. He didn't enjoy anyone, anything in this world. Yet he had a royal table. And at his table, he had the most royal delicacies imaginable. For his guests, the richest, the best. For himself, he didn't partake in any. So God forbid, pain and suffering, we're talking about justifying pain and suffering, dealing with pain and suffering, receiving it with joy, thanking Hashem. That's all in relation to my own pain and suffering. Another Jew's pain and suffering has to completely crush me. And we have to storm heaven and earth and with tears cry to Hashem. Feel their pain, feel their suffering. Cry to Hashem to remove the pain and suffering. God forbid to justify, to rationalize and to justify another person's pain and suffering, another human being's pain and suffering. It's very clear. God forbid to make that distinction. All of this discussion is only about how we deal with our own personal pain and suffering. Not to make peace with another human being. 186. Like most of the components of the Gerat HaKodesh, this pastoral letter too was addressed to the Hasidic community as a whole. Why then, echoing the words first addressed to Daniel to enlighten you with understanding, does the Alter Rebbe open it in the singular? In this letter, the Alter Rebbe demands spiritual service of a caliber so seemingly formidable as to be attainable only by a chosen few. 
For entity calls upon the reader not to desire physical things, even those things that are essential for his well-being and utilized in his service of Hashem. Even such essential, states the Alter Rebbe, should not be desired for their physicality, but for their spirituality, for the spark of godliness found within them. So much so that even if a person finds that he is lacking, God forbid, life's essentials, he should not be pained by their absence. Rather, he should rejoice in his belief that this is indeed for his good, as shall soon be explained. Such a lofty response to deprivation would seem to be within the reach of only a very restricted elite. The Alta Rebbe, therefore, begins this letter in the singular, indicating that every single individual can attain this level of divine service, for it requires only an absolute faith in Hashem, and this lies hidden within every Jew. Let him but unveil this faith, and he will be able to live by it. And if God singled this Jew out for pain and suffering to be tested, that means that God is giving this Jew a powerful dose of energy and strength because the divine energy behind the test is profound, very deep and very powerful. So that alone gives the Jew the strength that he needs to completely transform himself, to elevate himself, to reach this high level he's going to describe in this letter. To enlighten you with understanding. This is a quote from Daniel. Okay. That not by this path will the light of Hashem dwell within, by desiring the life of flesh and children and sustenance. The altar rabbi is negating the desire that emanates from a craving for pleasure rather than a desire that results from purposeful need. It's very strange, a choice of words. Alter Rebbe says, this is not the path through which the light of God will dwell. That a person should not desire pleasure, physical pleasure, the life of the flesh. This is not the path? Why would I even think for a moment that this is the path? How could anyone think for a moment and entertain the thought? Who would think that the path to serve God is through having physical and carnal pleasure? I mean, that's what Alter Rebbe has to tell us. This is not the path through which you draw down Hashem. Obviously, no one would even entertain, no one would even think for a moment that this is the path. Alter Rebbe has to tell us this is not the path. The fact that he has to tell us that this is not the path means that I would entertain that this is the path. Because there is a path a genuine path to God where a person does desire material. Not for, the sake, not for the sake of carnal pleasure, not for the sake of desiring material for its own sake. Materialism for its own sake. But for desiring materialism in a kosher way. Because there is a path where the Torah says that a person... It says a person is supposed to say, a person is obligated to say, that really, I would like to eat ham. But what can I do? My Father in Heaven says I should not eat ham. From my own point of view, from a natural point of view, why not? I should partake in this world. Why shouldn't I eat non-kosher? But God says no. So for the sake of my Father in Heaven, I don't eat. So there is a path. There is a genuine path within Torah, within Judaism, that a person does desire material things, 
And yet, for the sake of my Father in Heaven, for the sake of God, I restrain myself. Impulse control. I control myself, and I, don't, I won't eat it because God asked me not to. So there is a path in the Torah where I would desire material things. And it would seem to be a positive, normal, natural, I should desire, and yet I should overcome that desire. As we had already learned earlier in chapter 27, in the first part of the Tanya, the tremendous pleasure that it gives God when a person exercises impulse control, when you're able to overcome your natural instinct, and you're able to restrain yourself. You desire to do something material, and you overcome. So that gives God tremendous pleasure. So that is a path to serve God. So the Alter Rebbe, that's what Alter Rebbe says. Yes, that is a path, but it's not the path that will lead to the dwelling of Hashem. Yishkein. Alter Rebbe, choice, choice of words. Yishkein. For God to dwell. For God to be revealed. And then he adds, Oy Hashem, the light of Hashem. For God's presence to be felt and to be dwelled. When you say the Shekhinah, when you say that God dwells, it means God is sensed and God is felt and God is palpable. There is a path where you overcome. Yes, you have an urge, an instinct, and you have a desire for material things. But you overcome it for the sake of heaven. And that draws down a tremendous light. It has a tremendous impact in heaven. God receives tremendous pleasure and delight from our, us human beings overcoming our shortcomings, overcoming our human urges and instincts and nature. But in order to draw down God's light, in order for godliness to be felt and sensed and palpable and tangible in this world, for that we need a different path. And that's the path that he's describing here. What's that path? Where we have absolutely no desire in anything material. Not only we have no desire in anything carnal, we have no desire in anything material. Except, of course, what's necessary to serve God. Of course, I need, I need, I need material in order to serve God. That's my only desire. Why do I desire health? Because I need to serve God. I have to be healthy. You can't do mitzvah if you're sick. You can't study Torah if you have a headache. Your mind is not functioning properly. So I need, that's my only reason, my only reason, my only desire for materialism is only one purpose, to serve God. But on my own, I have no desire for any materialism. It has no value to me. It means absolutely nothing. Only when a person reaches such a level, we have zero desire for anything material, for materialism. You have no desire for anything material. It means nothing to you. It has zero value to you. Absolutely insignificant. That's the path where you can draw down Hashem's light into this world. Only then could Hashem's light be completely revealed in this world. But if you follow the other path, that's what he says. This is not the path to draw down Hashem's light. There are paths which are valid paths that we are attached to materialism and we desire materialism and we overcome our urgent instinct. And by that we give God tremendous pleasure. That's a path. But it's not the path that will draw down God's light in a revealed way in this world. Or Hashem, to reveal Yishka, that God will be present and felt and palpable, that you need a different path. 
to accomplish that, to achieve that, you have to reach a level where you have no desire for anything materialist, per se. I desire it only as, as such as I necessary in order to fulfill Torah and Mitzvah. But per se, materialism per se, I have no desire for anything materialist. Continue. For on this our stages of blessed memory said, nullify your will out of deference to his will. So, regularly we can learn, we can explain the Mishnah in the chapter, Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter 2, we can explain the Mishnah that it means nullify your will. I have a will. I do desire materialistic things. But what can I do? My Father in Heaven said no. Don't eat the ham. So I'm going to bend my will, break my will, resist temptation, overcome my urge and instinct, impulse control. That's one way of learning it. So the Al-Turabi will now explain no. That's not what the Mishnah means. The Mishnah is talking about a much deeper level. What does the Mishnah mean? Continue. This means not that one should set aside his own will because it does not coincide with God's will, but that from the onset, one's will should be so nullified that he has no desire whatever for any worldly matters. He's saying that what the Mishnah means is what he's explaining here. Nullify your will means don't have a will. Not that I'm bending my will. Nullify your will. I don't want, I don't desire anything other than what God wants. I don't desire materialism. All I care about and all I want is godly things. Holy things. Good things. Goodness, kindness, Torah, mitzvah, selflessness. That's all I care about. That's all I want. I don't desire materialism, indulgence, power, fame, money. It means nothing to me. That's what the mission means. Completely nullify your will. Not that you have a will and you overcome your will. Completely nullify your will. It's a very high level. That are incorporated within the three uh, general categories of children, life, and sustenance. Although these are essentials and though they affect one's divine service, they should be desired not for themselves, but only insofar as they further the accomplishment of one's spiritual task. So of course, a person has to desire. By Torah, you have to desire life, sustenance, children, family, earn a living. But I desire it not as an end in itself, not because I care about carnal pleasures or because I desire material things. That's not what I live for. That's not what my life is about. What do I desire? What do I care about? What do I live for? Godliness. But in as much as I need, in order to fulfill my godly obligations, I need sustenance, and I need a wife, and I need a child, and I need a spouse, and I need children. And I need, this is things that I need in order for me to fulfill my obligations. But it's not that I live for that. It's not what I lust for, that's not what I live for, that's not my pleasure. My pleasure, and what do I lust for, and what do I live for, and what do I care about? Godly thing. That's my life. And everything else is just a means to an end. Continue. The above directive to nullify thus implies an utter nullification of the self. Confronted by a scholar of stature, a lesser scholar may experience self-effacement, but he still remains a self-assertive personality. 
Utter nullification, by contrast, means that this sensation of self ceases to exist. In similar vein, nullifying one's own wishes before Hashem connotes the absence of any wishes other than Hashem. There could be a nullification like the uh, scholar that you, you, null, you bend your will. God is greater than you. So you bend your will for God's will. What can I do? My Father in Heaven doesn't want me to eat ham, so I won't eat ham. So you bend your will for God's will. But then there's a much deeper where you become completely egoless. There's no I. I don't want. I have no personal agendas. I have no private agendas. I have no personal agendas. My life is nothing other than Hashem. God is nothing else. I don't have any personal private agendas. My whole life is God. I have no other will. God's will is my will. I don't have any other will. I don't have any personal will, personal ambitions, dreams, desires. My dreams and desires are God's dreams, ambitions and desires. Whatever God wants, that's what I want. I don't have any personal self. There's no self, there's no ego, there's no... Completely nullified. There's no personal will. My whole will is God's will. There's nothing else. One should thus live in the spirit of teaching of our sages, of blessed memory that against your will do you live. This is what the Mishnah says in Ethics of Our Fathers. In chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, I'm forced to live. In other words, I don't really care. Life in this world, material life, I don't care. Now, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, we just celebrated his liberation. Sentenced to death by Stalinist Russia. And um, he uh, refused to acknowledge his interrogators, refused to show them any respect. And first thing they do is they break his spirit and they couldn't break his spirit the previous Rebbe was strong and he, he just he says in my eyes you're zero you're nobodies you're nothings you're criminals you're, you're, you're nobodies and they drove them furious drove them mad this was the first prisoner they ever had that <laughs> they were beating him and hurting him and you know they could have killed him and he just didn't show them any respect didn't, show, didn't acknowledge them very cool and very and finally one of them got so frustrated he took out a gun and he said you know this little toy made a lot of people speak the previous Rebbe looked at him very coolly and he said yes a person a person who has two gods in one world this toy can make him speak but I have one god in two worlds so this little toy doesn't frighten a Jew he's not so attached to this world who cares about this world we have one god that's our reality, God. So this world, we make the transition to the next world. It's, it's, God remains the same. It's not, it doesn't change anything. So we're not so attached to this world. When you're attached to this world, you can't even imagine what it means leaving this world. That's why death is so frightening. You have two gods in one world. Death is too frightening. But if you have one God in two worlds, it's not the on the contrary the, the whole reason I'm here is because I'm forced to be here I don't want to be here I would rather be I, I would rather be in heaven but a better place but God wants me here so by force I'm here God sent me into this world and he has a mission for me and I'm his ambassador and I have to stay in this world I have to man my post I'm in the front line I would rather be home be home in heaven but here I am so when you're not attached to this world this world doesn't hold a hold on you 
The people who can't see beyond their nose, this, their, their nose is buried in the sand. They're so caught up in this world and about getting ahead and about making it and succeeding. And the uh, whole life is about money and making it to the Forbes 400 and making it to the top. And it consumes their whole life. And they forget about Hashem. For a Jew, this is not, this is not what life is about. It doesn't hold such a hold, it doesn't have such a grip on us, it doesn't have such a hold on us. Our life is about God, about Hashem. That's what reality is. There is no other reality. Everything else is just a means to an end. So, so my whole life here is by force. It's not my wish. It's not my will. We don't even belong here. We're strangers here. We're here on a mission. We're not part of this world. And the world doesn't let us forget that we're not part of this world. The Jews are not part of this world. Look at the treatment of Israel. Incredible, incredible. More, Jew, more people died in Syria in the last year than all of the Israeli wars in 66 years since Israel's founding. All the wars combined. No one lifts a pinky, no one says a word. One person dies in Gaza, whatever. The whole world, look, look at those Jews. It's so obvious they couldn't care less. They don't care about civilians dying. It's so purely anti-Semitic. It's so blatant. All they care about is the Jew. You have demonstrations all over the world. No demonstrations. 150,000 people in Syria gassed. ISIS butchering people in Iraq. Who cares? Millions of people killing each other in Africa. Who cares? But a Jew. Riots. Vicious riots. Vicious hatred. The whole world comes clamoring. We were the prime ministers when 2,000 rockets were being rained and 5 million people. Nazi crimes against humanity, civilians. No, the ministers were busy golfing, the president was busy golfing, fundraising, couldn't be bothered. Something happens with the Jews. Oh, the Jews are getting serious, they're fighting back. As the bullies told the cops, it all began when he started hitting me back. <laughs> started fighting back. All of a sudden, the president gives up his vacation, the, all the prime ministers get, get, uh, get busy, the foreign secretaries, Kerry is running around, he gives up his golf. It's so blatantly anti-Semitic. So the world doesn't let the Jew forget that we're not part of this world. They'll never treat us like part of this world. They'll never treat us normal. There's such a, not a double standard, a triple standard. But this is... So we don't really belong here. We're not part of it. Hashem sent us here on a mission. We have a holy mission. We have a godly mission. We have a divine mission to teach the world right from wrong. And by Israel being strong, we will teach the world right from wrong. So black and white, well, who is good and who is evil here? Anyone who can see that difference has the soul of a Nazi. It's just a vicious anti-Semite. And there's no excuses anymore. Till now, you can say, listen, you know, you're so open-minded, your brains fell out, you, you couldn't figure it out yourself, you, you bought into the propaganda, you, you're, reading, you're reading too many newspapers, watching too many news shows, but now it's so black and white. One missile against the civilian population. This is a Nazi crime. This is crime against humanity. 2,000 missiles against 5 million people. Not a sound, not a peep. And them hiding behind babies, running with babies, hiding in ambulances, which is a double war crime. Their own children making bomb shelters for their missiles. Jews make bomb shelters to protect people. They make bomb shelters to keep the people on top and they keep the bomb shelters to protect their missiles. Hiding in hospitals. This is, this is a, 
Anyone who can't see that difference, no more excuses. You're a vicious anti-Semite. You have a soul of a Nazi. And I couldn't care less what you think. Because you're hopeless. Brain dead, soulless, and just absolute evil. And you are a spiritual terrorist, an intellectual terrorist. Anyone who can be sympathetic, who can, who's not sympathetic to the Jews, it's so black and white. Since World War II, we haven't had a clearer, more black and white, who is good and who is bad. These terrorists make the worst Jew in the world look like a saint by comparison. And anyone who can't see that and is critical of Israel, you're hopeless. You're absolutely evil. I couldn't care less who, what, what you think. There's no argument in the world that will ever reach you because you're brain dead. No conscience. So we're not part of this world. And the anti-Semites will never let us forget that we're not part of this. We're here in a mission, in a holy mission. God's chosen people here for a godly and holy mission. And Israel is the holy land. And we have a holy Torah and we have a holy God. 3,800 years of Jewish history. And the best is yet to come. Jewish destiny. Mashiach. So our attachment to the world is not so... We're forced to live. We're here in a mission. Because that's not how we define our life. We define our life by our relationship with Hashem. Our connection with Hashem. And that's something our enemies will never get. They have no clue how powerful, how deep, how profound the Jewish soul is. We've outlived Hitler. We've outlived all these anti-Semites. You don't frighten us. You don't scare us. We were there in your birth. We'll be there at your death. Islam is the kid on the block. It doesn't frighten us. When Islam was born 1,400 years old, we were already 2,000 years old. We've been in Israel for 3,800 years. How dare you call Jews thieves and robbers? We stole the land. When, when you were born, we were already there 2,000 years. So you don't frighten us. And Jews are united. And Jews are united miracles happen. So this is what he says, that we are by force, we will live there by force, against your will, because we have no attachments, we have no ego attachments. We don't care about materialism per se. We care about one thing, we care about Hashem, and our relationship with Hashem. Okay, continue. One should view yes. the corporeal aspects of his life as being contrary to his will. And surely so with regard to the corporal aspects of children and sustenance. Probably the most loving letter that the Rebbe ever wrote. Encouraging any Jew who has to experience pain and suffering. Making them realize that God has chosen them, designated them, by testing them just to elevate them to the highest level possible, the level of a complete tzaddik. The power behind the test has the ability to completely transform them, transform their very being, their whole core and essence. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.